Okay, this is Wednesday night, April 7th. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 27. This is not historically the right time because it would have fallen during the Passover week, which the Jews already had. But if you understand that our Easter is supposed to coincide with Passover, this would be the day that Jesus was killed. Uh, and you know, y'all aren't misunderstanding me. It's a Wednesday, and I'm saying that's the day that Jesus would be killed. We've all been taught, growing up, that Good Friday is the day that Jesus was killed on. And we were taught that it was a Friday because Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that the next day was a Sabbath. And uh, I always had a problem finding out how we get from a Friday crucifixion where he's in the grave sometime after 3 and before 6 when the Sabbath started... Uh, and he's out of the grave early Sunday morning when they get there. One gospel says early in the morning, the other says before light. And how is he not there? You know, Jesus said that he would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. I was confronted with this teaching early on uh, in my Christian walk, and I took it to the people that I respected, and they told me I was wrong. They studied, came back, and found out that that was not the case. Jesus was killed on a Wednesday. So, well, how on earth do we derive that? To start with, we know he wasn't there Sunday. So, uh, if you back up from there three days, you get to Wednesday. And that's how I know for sure it had to be a Wednesday. But then when you look in the Word, do you see it? Do you see evidence for that? And we will cover tonight that we do. We're going to get into the chronology of John. But... We're supposed to be teaching Matthew 27, so we're going to start there, and as we get to the crucifixion, I will get to John. And I promise I'll take questions, I'll do whatever we need to do so that you understand the uh, Passover. But the, the big, big hint is the triumphal entry had to happen on the 10th of Nisan. The Passover, which was four days later, had to be the 14th of Nisan. The day that the Passover began which started, Jewish days start at 6 p.m., not 12 midnight like us. They start at 6 p.m. That day was a holy day. It was a special Sabbath, a high day to the Lord, because it was also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the law tells us we could do no work on that day. Not we, but rather the Jewish nation. And John tells us that there was a special Sabbath the day uh, after Jesus was killed. He was killed before 6 p.m. 6 p.m. started a new day, which started a new Sabbath. There were two Sabbaths that week is the short answer. But in any case, we're going to start in Matthew 27, verse 1. Uh, We have gone through Jesus being arrested, him being questioned by the Sanhedrin, Peter disowning Jesus, and now we are in Matthew 27, verse 1. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Well, it's true that very early in the morning this happened. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us that it was 6 a.m., and we're, we're going to get there eventually. But they had been working towards this for a while. Do you remember that many times in Jesus' ministry, he indicated the kind of death he would die? He said, if the Son of Man be lifted up. He'll draw all men to him. And John writes in there, he said this to indicate the kind of death he would die. Uh, earlier in Matthew, he just came right out and said, after uh, when I've been crucified, uh, afterwards I'll go ahead of you when I've risen and uh, I'll meet you in Galilee. You know, Jesus knew ahead of time. There is a specific reason 
that he knew he had to be killed by the Romans, though. And there's a reason that the Jews wanted him to be killed by the Romans. And in our day right now, with the passion of Christ being a big topic, everybody wants to know who's responsible for killing Jesus. And the Sunday school easy answer is, well, we all are. And I've heard Mel Gibson and everybody else say, if we're going to play the culpability game, we're all equally culpable. That's really not true. And I I love him. I'm thankful. On some level, we're all responsible because he died for each one of us. So I'm not arguing that. But you can see very clearly from the scriptures that the Jewish leaders used the Roman rulers to kill Jesus. And then they cried out, let his blood be on our head and the head of our children's children. And you know what? It was, you know, and to ignore that or act like that didn't occur is every bit as big of a mistake as any other part of the scripture that you ignored because you see a great price that was paid. Nobody ever, ever mentions this because it sounds like justified morality. The white folks in this country that enslaved black folks tried to use biblical justifications for it. The plight that the black folks had was uh, somehow because they were under a mark of Cain or what, whatever it was that they could do. And that's called justified morality. When you do something bad to somebody, then you try to justify yourself on a moral basis. What I'm fixing to tell you sounds like that, but I promise it's not. Instead, it's biblical prophecy. God said in the book of Malachi, if you do not receive the one that I'm sending you, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Jesus, standing in the temple, said there's going to be a day when not one stone is left on another stone. Y'all, if you go back and read the prophecies, three times in the Jewish nation's history, they ate their own children. Three times. At the fall of uh, the temple and all the sieges that took place was, was another one. And God said it would happen. Now, I'm not saying that the Jews did something bad and so it was justified that somebody hurt them. I love the Jewish nation. I serve their king. I'm going to serve them as a missionary. And I've given my kids Jewish names in the hope that they'll work in an end-time revival. But to leave out the fact that the nation paid a terrible price for the blood of their king being on their heads is a huge mistake. We need to say exactly what happened. They killed their king. Had we been in their place, we might have done the same thing. Not throwing a stone at them as bad people. They will look upon the one they pierced and they will mourn because they'll realize what they did. That doesn't happen if we say, oh, no, no, they didn't have anything to do with it. We all need to step up to the plate. Say, we were godless heathens. We were Gentiles. We weren't looking for God when he found us. You know, we were people that were ignorant. They were people that should have known better. They didn't know better and we serve God in our serve the devil in our ignorance. Now we all have a knowledge that we've come to. There's no difference between us and we're all serving the same king. But we need to explain it biblically. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Y'all, you don't think of Judas as having been remorseful and sinning and, and, and repenting. He was remorseful enough to go hang himself, which is yet another sin, you know. The thing is... Judas let an offense come into his life. 
We, we know of at least one. It was just recorded. It's when that jar of perfume was broken on Jesus' feet. Judas, he wanted the money for himself. He didn't understand why Jesus was talking about death and burial. He didn't like it. But does anybody know why Judas was really upset and why the apostles did not seem to get that Jesus was going to die no matter how many times he said it? Does anybody know why? Is there any thought that comes to mind? These people had their hopes pinned upon the Old Testament. The Old Testament very clearly portrays an age where Israel rules the earth, where they are the chief among all nations, where the law of God goes out from Mount Zion. We see this as the millennial reign. This was not clear to them. Daniel 7 could not be any more clear about what their expectations were. Daniel 7, starting in the 15th verse, moves on down, says, As clear as day, there will only be four kingdoms that will rule the earth. Be the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. Well, what time period was Jesus born into? The Roman, the fourth kingdom that ruled the earth. So these people saw themselves in the fourth kingdom, the last one, and Daniel said that they would be handed over to this empire, the saints would, the people of God would, and they would be persecuted, and they would be defeated. Were the Jews persecuted? Yes. Were they defeated? Yes, they were conquered as a nation. You know what then Daniel says? It says, then one like the Son of Man will come, and the courts will be opened, and the kingdom will be handed to the saints, and they'll possess it forever and ever. Now, we can clearly see that this is Matthew 24. This is when Jesus returns, and he pronounces judgment in favor of the saints. But to them, standing there, they were expecting Jesus, who was the Christ, to do this. And when they saw that it didn't happen, it took a real sincere love to overcome their disappointment. Some of the apostles had it. Others didn't. Or some of the disciples, I should say, had it. So Judas, when he betrayed him, don't think he had the idea, oh, I'm going to get this guy killed and you know, I'm just going to off him. There's a real strong possibility he was trying to force Jesus into doing what he thought Jesus came to do, which was overthrow the Romans. And Jesus will overthrow the Roman Empire. But not in that day. That's yet to come. And uh, this, this was a mystery. Okay. So Judas threw the money. I'm sorry, starting back in verse 4. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they responded. That's your responsibility. Listen to legalism. Legalism says... This is the heart of which legalism has. I can't do such and such because it says I can't do it. But there is no law against this other thing that's obviously wrong, so I can do it. Legalism says, here's, here's dietary legalism, okay? This would be fun. Acton says I can't eat this because of the carbs. But it doesn't say anything about eating this thousand calorie thing, right? Neither one of them are good for us. We know that. But legalism says uh, the rule is this. I'm, I'm, obedient, I'm being obedient to the rule, ignoring the spirit. Well, the Pharisees did that. Not only the Pharisees, the church as a whole does it. They don't smoke because they're so holy, but they will throw stones at people who do. You know? They don't drink because they're so holy, even though their king was not so holy that he didn't drink. But they'll throw stones at everybody that does. They praise God with their mouths and they curse their neighbor with the same mouth. You know? Legalism produces that. These people were so corrupt that they actually thought that if they didn't accept this money back from him into the temple treasury because there was a specific law against it, 
Dude was okay if they took it and did something else with it. You know? That's, that's kind of like saying, you sold some dope and you have the money? Well, I can't put that in the church treasury because that's dirty. But I can put it in my personal checking account, you know, because that's okay. You know, that, that's, by the way, if you have a big stash of dope money somewhere, it's okay. We'll put it in the church treasury. <laughs> okay, God's able to make all things clean. I, I, I'm teasing. I know a guy that burned his, or heard of a guy who burned his quite a few thousand dollars when he got safe because it was dirty money. I said, oh, no, 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 God can clean that, I promise. Uh, but that, that, that's their attitude. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The other thing is, these leaders of Israel had no sympathy in their heart for a man who was trying, you know, who was remorseful. Had they been godly shepherds, which of course they were not, Judas might could have been salvaged. But the scripture foretold ahead of time that he would not be. The scripture foretold ahead of time that the one who did this, what would happen. It even foretold, if you read Zechariah, it even foretold that Jesus would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. In two places in the scripture, Jeremiah and Zechariah, it foretold that the field, the money that would, he was sold out for, would be used to buy a field where people would be buried. Now, when you think about the fact that Jeremiah was living during the day of the Babylonian captivity 600 years before Jesus, that's pretty amazing. And Zechariah immediately after the Babylonian captivity. That's pretty darn amazing, huh? That'd be like way before George Washington, you know, somebody knowing that you were going to buy a house in Sugar Land and writing it down. Not to mention they knew that Stacy Wilson was alive, but that she would also live in Texas. And not only live in Texas, but buy a specific field for a specific price. That's amazing. That's amazing. Those kind of things, I don't, I don't care what people say. There is no way to make that happen. You know, surely Judas was not trying to prove that the scripture was true by doing this, you know. I mean, well, and then he got what he deserved. That means I need to go hang myself. You know that? He wouldn't do that. And the psalm speaks about it too. But So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? We're not going to turn to each of the other gospels, but if you read Luke especially, Luke has a much longer discourse between Pilate and Jesus. First thing that happens is Pilate's wife comes and says, hey, hey, look, don't, don't have anything to do with this guy. I've lost a lot of sleep and been, been really troubled because of a dream I've had about him. So, so don't hurt him. And uh, that seems to set Pilate on edge. He listens to the charges. And then he asks Jesus, he pulls him aside, you know, he says, hey, are, are you really the king of the Jews? Jesus looks at him plainly and says, yeah, I am. And in Luke it records... But my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my people would fight, you know. And uh, he adds, but anyone who, who is on the side of truth is on my side. And I'm paraphrasing. And Pilate asked the most profound question. It's what people are still asking today. Jesus, what is truth? You know, what, what is truth? Why didn't Pilate recognize it when he saw it? You know, why is it that one person sees the gospel and falls in love and another person sees it and it's hardened? Friends, we better condition our hearts. The gospel was meant to cause the reaction 
of the woman that anointed Jesus' feet or the reaction of Judas. It was meant to cause the reaction of the thief on the cross that praised Jesus or the one that cursed him. It was meant to be a dividing line in the sand that caused people either to fall head over heels in love with him or reject him utterly. It was never intended that people stand with one foot on either side. In fact, you really can't do that. But that's where most Christians are. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Why would that be amazing? Jesus didn't love his life so much as to fight for it. He didn't find it necessary to speak against everything that people said, even when it's false. Oh, we really don't do good at that, though, do we? Let somebody say something about you that's not true. Then you fight the urge to correct it. And you'll justify it in every kind of way. Oh, but it's important that my witness be godly. And what they're saying about me is not godly. There's a great example in Numbers 12, maybe Numbers 11. Aaron and Miriam began to grumble against Moses because he had a Cushite wife. The thinking there is that uh, Abraham was Semitic. Not Abraham. Um, Moses was Semitic. Probably brown skin, brown eyes, but that his wife, a Cushite, which is the area of Ethiopia, was probably, uh, would look similar to an Af- African American person today, or, or perhaps another part of the world, but very dark skin. So they were grumbling. They didn't like it. You know, those same kind of struggles for the races have gone on forever. It says, now Moses was a humble man, the most humble man on the planet. He never went to Miriam and and never went to Aaron. He never defended himself. And because of that, God defended him. Well, Jesus is taking that same attitude here. He's not speaking up in his own defense. He's allowing God to defend him. And the way that God did that was when they committed an injustice against him, the Bible speaks of God taking hold of Jesus and raising him from the grave. The one who was trodden on by the kingdoms of the world will trod upon the kingdoms of the world. The one who was placed as the tail will be the head. That's, that's how God writes a wrong. Christians are supposed to go through our lives being willing to be persecuted, realizing that God's glory rests upon our shoulders if that's the case, and that there is a day when those who have done those things will receive what is due them. There will be a reversal of the system. It's why you're supposed to pray for the people who are ugly to you, because you know what they're in for. You know, you want them to be shown some mercy, because if you don't take vengeance, God does, and it's much worse than what you could have conceived of. And uh, that's why you should have, have pity on them. But Jesus did not answer the charges. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. He did this on the feast days, trying to appease the Jews, trying to keep them from rioting, trying to make people happy. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? The reason he picked Barabbas and not somebody else was because it was inconceivable to him that this Jewish carpenter who had really not done, not committed a crime, he's not there because he killed somebody, He's not there because he raped somebody. He's not there because he stole something. It was inconceivable that they would want a murderer, which Barabbas was, to be set free instead of him. He was trying to set Jesus free. 
And he was trying to set Jesus free because he was scared to death that Jesus might be exactly who he said he was. His wife had been warned. He had a funny feeling in his stomach. For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. The guy was also perceptive enough to know that the reason the Pharisees didn't like him was they were jealous. Presumably, Pilate had heard about some of the great things Jesus had done and how it upset the Pharisees. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, you know, all of man's problems in life, all of them, come when we sit in a judgment seat. The Bible speaks about God as the only righteous judge, about Christians as only able to make judgment as God directs us to make judgment. But whenever a man is sitting on the seat of judge, not, not relying upon God's spirit to make the judgment, but he himself, we make the wrong judgment. That's gone on since the garden forward. That's how death entered our, our humanity. That's how the problems that we have existed. We are not fit to make judgments. What you're really doing when you become a Christian is giving up the right to make judgments about anything, whether it be good or bad, and ask God's Spirit to lead you in your judgment. You want Him to make the judgment for you. The reason the law is flawed is because it tells you something's bad, something's good, but there's a whole lot it doesn't tell you. And also doesn't give you the strength to do that, which is good. You know? There's a law that says don't speed, but there might not be one that says, you know, oh, it's one that says don't drink and drive, right? But it's the one that says don't smoke hash and drive. You know? So it must be okay then, right? That's the kind of mind that, that we lost, not we, but that lost people have. So you give up the right to make judgments. The law were just put there to constrain you until a time of freedom in the Spirit could come. So Pilate sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Whose idea was it? To uh, crucify Jesus? Theirs. Now, let me ask you something. They're fixing to make the argument, we can't, this guy, what he's done is demands death. And we can't, we can't commit capital punishment because that's a Roman right. And you guys have heard this growing up in church, that the Jews did not have the right to capital punishment. So they had to hand Jesus over to the Romans to be killed. Well, that's, that's what we've heard always, and that is true as a matter of fact. But what is not true is that that was their motivation. In fact, you see, they tried to kill Jesus several other times. He walked through the crowd. Who else did they kill? Who's the first Christian that they killed that you can think of? Stephen. How'd they kill him? Stoned him. Now, did they have the right to do that? No. The Romans would be very angry if they, they killed one. Uh, because they didn't have the right to capital punishment. That was one of the agreements they made with Rome to keep their temple life the way that it was. So why is it that they're willing to step out on a limb and kill Stephen? Or earlier they were trying to kill Jesus and they would do it with stones. But now they insist that it has to be the governor that does it. Well, it was two reasons. One you may have thought of and one I promise you haven't thought of. The, the first, the one that you may have thought of, is they wanted him to die in a certain way. They wanted him to die by hanging him on a cross because their law said if you're hung on a cross, you're cursed. They were trying to show the people that he was cursed by God. 
And that, I mean, that, that's important. That's what they were trying to do. The second, they wanted it to look as if Pilate was responsible for it, so that if anybody was angry, they'd be angry at the Romans because they had already discussed it. Ooh, we can't kill him during the feast. If we do, they may riot. See, that keeps showing up. They've, they've been worried about that from the beginning. They're looking for some sly way to kill him. They're looking for a way to kill him without seeming responsible. Why do you think this trial happened in the morning? You know, they went and got him at night. The trial happened all night. Then in the morning, this decision's made. I've always had the idea that every Jew in Jerusalem was here. It is not the case. It happened in the morning. Now, everybody knew he was crucified. I'm not, not saying that. And the ones that are there did turn on him. I'm not saying that. But it was certainly not every person in Israel. You know, I've always had that conception in my mind. It, it's not right. You know, think about how many things happen in a day in, in Sugarland that you don't know about, much less, you know, in a, in a national capital. And see, they, they got him in the garden in the middle of the night. The trials were happening at 6 a.m. He was on the cross by 9 a.m. There are mornings I don't wake up till 9 a.m. Not in a long time, but there are those mornings. You understand what I'm saying? So keep in your mind, they wanted to do two things. They wanted to show the people he was cursed by God, and they wanted to look like it wasn't their fault he died. Yeah. Yeah. People, people were making preparations for the Passover, which started at 6 o'clock this evening. Uh, so they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered. Now get this. All right. So we can shy away from it if we want to, because we're scared that we'll look anti-Semitic. If I'm made out to be anti-Semitic, then the Jews have no friends because I love the nation. You know, I, I would go fight in Israel's army to protect their, their borders. You know, I'll, I would vote for I'll send money. I'll do anything I can to protect the Jewish people. We'll serve them to the point that I gave my children Jewish names, hoping that they'll work in Israel. So I'm not anti-Semitic, but listen to this response. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. So who's responsible? Well, they, they're asking for the responsibility. We, we have a tendency to vilify Pilate. Pilate's responsible too. Okay? I'm not saying he's not. But you can't read this and come away with the idea that this was Pilate's idea to kill him. Kill him. In fact... Jesus says, you don't have any authority except what my Father gave you. Therefore, now get this. He says, therefore, the one that handed me over to you is guilty of, y'all remember this, the greater sin. Jesus said that. But we ignore all of that if it's not popular. Now, I'm proud of that movie, The Passion. I love it. I'm, I'm excited that it's happening. I don't endorse everything in it, but I think it's a great show. But, you know, that was taken out wonder why. Now, I'm not trying to create an anti-Semitic feeling, but we don't need to get away from the idea that the Jews betrayed their king. You know, we, we really don't. And now we've been grafted into an opportunity that many of them missed. And it's our job to say, guys, you killed the author of life. But you know what? He's able to graft you in again. 
That's what, that's what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. The most successful preaching percentage-wise that you can think of is when he's talking to a crowd of people and 3,000 are saved. And the Bible says all that were elect were saved. In other words, every person there was saved. Isn't that amazing? And you know how he did it? The same Peter that had been scared of the Jews before stands up and says, uh, by the way, you with the help of sinful men killed the author of life. You know, he didn't shy away from it. But we do. Uh, or some do. Then he released Barabbas to them. When he had had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Incidentally, history records that Pilate went to the grave wringing his hands. You know how a little kid does in the principal's office? You know, when he's worried? They said that he went to the grave wringing his hands like that. Never was free from the thought of what he did, even though he washed his hands. A lot of people wash their hands of Jesus, but it's not really possible to do. You can wash your hands of him in any situation that you want. You know, when you're sitting at a table and everybody says, you know, I like Christians who are silent. Uh, I like Christians who just wear doves around their neck but don't say anything. We can sit there and wash our hands of him. You know, when you feel the Spirit urging you to say something, or you can stand up and be a man or woman of God. I'm not talking about being contentious. I'm not talking about causing a problem. But we choose to wash our hands of him sometimes. It's not just Pilate that did this. You know, I, I've done it more times than I, I could count, and I'm not proud of not one of them. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of the soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. You know what else the Bible doesn't record that they taught me when I was in Israel? I stood in the place where they were supposed to have beaten him. And there's these like childlike games scratched into the concrete that have been there for thousands of years. This was a feast time for the Romans too. It was a special holiday season for them. And I don't understand the Roman holidays enough to know what holiday it was. But they told me that the reason that uh, Pilate released somebody to the Jews was to appease them and to appease his soldiers for having to work during this time, the Romans would give them a prisoner to play with. Like we might play tic-tac-toe on the ground, they played games of brutality with their prisoners. Have you ever wondered why they were so cruel to him? This was something that, you know, it was... Have you ever seen in Afghanistan or some of the uh, Far East countries, they'll take a, a dead lamb and play a game like soccer with it? And it looks horrendous to us, but they grow up doing it. It doesn't seem horrendous. You know, they're on horseback and they... Y'all never seen that? Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, there's a movie that I would never recommend that you watch. It was one of the Rambo movies, but he, he did it in that movie. And only one guy in here, so that's, that, nobody knows what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is to other cultures, there are some games that would seem horrendous to us that were not to them. This was their, their playtime. They saw him as a condemned criminal, somebody they could make sport of, and they beat him for fun. They covered his head, y'all, and they struck him in the face. 
and said, prophesy to me. Prophesy to me. Who struck you? You know, they, they went way beyond just scourging him. They beat him for fun. They dressed him in royal clothes because the Romans had oppressed the Jewish people. And here was their king. This was kind of like saying, you know, the Jews are so bad off that their king is this guy. And they beat him, the Bible speaks of, beyond recognition. You know? I, I one time had uh, a beating. And my face was so swollen that, you know, I couldn't, like, wear sunglasses or something because they were so wide. It was black and blue. But you could still recognize me. The Bible speaks of Jesus being beat beyond decency. Being beat beyond what any human being should, should have done. If you watch the movie, The Passion, it's hard. It's hard to even keep eye contact because there's something in you that lets you know that's not right. That's not right for anybody, no matter what. Same way if you saw somebody walk up and kick a baby. It wouldn't matter what the baby did. Something in you goes, oh man, that's not right. Something in you cries out. You want to stop it. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. There's a great deal of argument over that, and I haven't studied it. Some say the gall was a vinegar-like substance that was, uh, uh, this was like mean. Offering him rotten wine. Others say that it had a painkiller in it and it was an act of mercy. For whatever reason, regardless of which is true, Jesus did not drink it. Well, that's a good point, Cass. That's right. He's not going to drink that fourth cup. When they had crucified him, one of the, the translations does say after tasting it, he wouldn't drink it. But the point's still the same. He wasn't trying to drink wine. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Before I forget to say this, one of the other Gospels mentions that that sign was in three languages. Do you all know what languages they were? Aramaic or Hebrew. What else? Latin, the language of the Romans. What else? What were the Gospels written in? Greek. That's the languages... That the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth spoke. In other words, it was represented in all the major people groups of the world. The three major languages, the three sons of Noah's descendants, they all had the sign above his head. Jesus, the king of the Jews. The idea being, it was clear to every human being exactly what was happening here. Whether they understood it or not, in symbolism, all mankind was aware that, that the king of the Jews was being killed. The Christ, the son, the son of God, was being killed. There's a great teaching about the sons of Noah. And any time they come together in history, it's a major point. But that would be another teaching. Because I want to get to John and all that. So, two robbers were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. They wanted a God who would come in and crush the Romans. They wanted a a political king. Instead, the king that showed up not only was not crushing the Romans, all he did was talk about the religious corruption in Israel. So they're upset. 
How funny it is that we continually try to mold God in our image. In America, we, we want him to be blonde hair, blue eyed and six feet tall. You know, in Asia, they might have a different view. I've been in a lot of homes in the United States where some of my darker skinned brothers and sisters had black Jesus on the wall. People are trying to remake God into their image. And if you don't like what he says, you don't like him. You just change it. You have a different story of Jesus, a different gospel. And it's not, that's not unique to Jesus, by the way. Siddhartha, the guy that is Buddha, he was not an Asian. Did you all know that? You always see him at the uh, China buffets, right? Big fat guy with, you know, man breast. You know, he was, and slanted eyes. He was not an Asian. He was from India. Siddhartha was from India. He, he had round eyes, not, not slanted. So why do you think he's depicted that way? Because Buddhism caught on in Asia. And they wanted him to look like them. See, and we do the same thing. And it's wrong. They did the same thing. When Jesus did not conform to what they thought he ought to be, they rejected him. They wanted a God like, like their King Saul. You know, that's what they wanted. They still want it today. They're still waiting for somebody to come in and make the kingdom of Israel the first in the world. Now, Jesus is going to do that. But you know what? They're going to get a king that they desire first. It's the Antichrist. He will come in. He'll make peace between all of the warring factions over there. He will give Israel what they wanted. They will flock to him for a time. And it's only when we are all in the olive press of persecution that they will see us be envious of our relationship with with Jesus. Look upon the one they've pierced. Repent and be saved. And that is the goal of the Gentile church. Romans makes it very clear. That is the goal, not to go to heaven, not to play a cloud on a harp. The goal, the reason that Paul preached to Gentiles was solely to provoke his people to jealousy in the hopes that they would be safe. And the Bible says, when Israel believes, it will be like life from the dead. When the last Jew accepts Christ, that is going to accept Christ, it sparks the resurrection in his return. So while everybody's searching the 1040 window, looking for any nation out there that has not heard the weak, watered-down, emaciated gospel that the denominations preach of donuts and gift certificates. While they're doing that, what really needs to be done, sure, the gospel has to go to all the world. But Jesus told the apostles, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel till I return. That's because the revival has got to be going on in Israel for him to return. Okay, that's... Anyway. Um, where were we, y'all? They struck him, crucified him, 41. I'm still looking for 41. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. You hear the sarcasm? Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, the robbers did heap insults on him. But one of them repents and gets born again. That's just not recorded here. That's recorded in another gospel. Just because people record the same event in different ways doesn't make them wrong. They're recording what's important. You know, I'll tell a story and I emphasize what's important to me. Somebody else tells a story and they emphasize as long as they don't contradict each other. And when one mentions one thing and another mention, doesn't mention, that's not a contradiction. A contradiction is when one says that wall is white. And the other says, no, that same wall is black. 
That's not what the Gospels do. And when you line them up, you get a more complete picture. It's also clear that these guys didn't get together and collaborate on this stuff. They didn't make up their story. You know, I remember being outside the principal's office as a little kid. I know y'all were never there. But being with the other little boys or girls or whatever it was that I was in trouble with, and us all getting our story straight. And being little kids, you know, they take you in one by one. They tell you that one said something that he really didn't say, and they break you down, right? These guys made no effort to do that. Y'all were never in the principal's office as kids. I was the only one, huh? Okay, I'm going to finish this part, and then we, I want to get into John. And uh, maybe we can pick up the pace a little here. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness over all the land. Darkness came over all the land. The sixth hour in Jewish time, and Matthew's written to the Jewish people, is the sixth hour of the day. Okay? The day was divided into 12 segments. And it was the sixth hour of the day. 12 segments, meaning 12 hours. So it's noon. And uh, it stayed dark uh, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. From 12 to 3, it was dark. Is it normally dark from 12 to 3? No, not, not at all. This was a supernatural sign there showing the people what was going on. What was this supernatural sign supposed to, to show? Well, let's see. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the most troubling verse to me in all of the Bible. What do you mean, forsaken him? You know, I thought he intended to do this. We saw that he did. We thought that he intended to go to the grave. So why is he now saying God forsook him? Jesus, as he walked around the planet, had been in perfect communion with his Father. Never separated from God. You know, when you sin, the very first thing you do is find it hard to pray. Very first thing. In fact, I can be in the middle of a sin. You know, I can be... Yelling at my wife. I know all y'all are shocked. And she can look at me and say, you just need to pray. And it enrages me. You know why? Because I'm in sin. It's the last thing I feel capable of doing at the moment. Now, as a Christian, we know that it's the first thing you should do. This was the first time in Jesus' whole life he had felt any separation from the Father. And friends, that had to be more painful than any beating that he had endured. He had always spoken of God as his father. He had never spoken of God as God. He always went, when this teaches how to pray, said, our father. He related to God as his father. And now for the first time in his life, he cries out, my God, my God. That is the cry of a lost person. A guy in prison says, God, if you'll get me out of here. But a Christian on his knees says, Father. There's a difference in relationship. He felt for the first time the separation from the Father because the sin of the world was upon his shoulders. That's why the darkness, it was showing that was coming upon him. It was a visual representation so that they could see it. You know what else? There's a massive earthquake that splits the ground, that tears the veil, showing, number one, that the veil was torn. He's giving you access to God. But why the earth split open? It is receiving the Christ. He's going into that place proclaiming, you have just killed an innocent man. You've tried to stop me since I was promised to Eve and you haven't been able to. And he led captivity captive, the Bible says. He took all of the righteous out of Abraham's bosom and into the presence of the Father. 
Now, he was there for three days, and that's a, that's a long story. But everything that happened in the earth was symbolic of something that was going on. It was to get the people's attention, and it did. Listen to what the... Listen to what they say. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. I always wondered why. Well, they go run to get something to drink. Jesus, can you imagine? His tongue was swollen. His mouth was dry. He was beaten. You know, I don't mean this disrespectfully, not at all. But if you slur your speech when you're drunk, not that anybody in here would know anything about that. But if you slur your speech when you're drunk, what do you think it's like when you've been kept up? All, all night and all day, beaten all day and all, all night, and then had been crucified for hours. I, I'm sure he was having trouble talking. And he cried this out. So they immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Well, he didn't ask for Elijah. But they misunderstood the Eloi, Eloi. And apparently it sounds like uh, Elijah. Now that's hard for me to understand. I, I don't speak Hebrew. But anyway. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Is that shocking? That's not recorded anywhere else. Not even John recorded that, who records everything that happened. Why? It's not the resurrection of the righteous. That's yet to come. So what is it? Jesus said he was the resurrection and he was the life. When he gave up the ghost, so to speak, as a testament to what would happen, because they didn't go preach until after he raised People went into the city and they preached. The Messiah came and you killed him. But he's been raised from the dead and we have too. Now these people had to die again. They had to. Because the dead in Christ are yet to rise and they haven't received their glorified body. That's, that's a technical matter of theology that we can talk about some other time. But they can't, this is no different than Lazarus being raised. It's no different than uh, Elijah's bones touching Somebody and them being raised. It's no different than any other raisings of the dead, except these were people that they revered. I don't know who they were, just many holy people. You know, if your great-grandmother had been a holy person, she'd been in the grave for ten years, you did some awful thing, and then you came home and she was standing outside your house chastising you, that'd be a pretty big witness, wouldn't it? Well, that's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Don't forget, Lazarus, you know, the, the Pharisees actually said, we can't deny it's done an outstanding miracle. How can we kill Lazarus again? I mean, that's how committed they were to this. Yeah, always resist the Holy Ghost. When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary of Zeb- and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And we're going to turn to John, because the next part I'm going to say for next Sunday. But y'all flip to John. And it'd be John 19. Now here, here's the thing. Y'all, I, don't, I don't really know what all we need to teach tonight. I can only share with you what I've been studying. And 
this is not really a time where you get a rah-rah, jump-up-and-down kind of sermon. If this day doesn't move you, if this is not on your thoughts, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in Christ. Because the thought of this act ought to be all the motivation that you need. It ought not depend upon my oratory abilities. You, You know what I mean? I'm not trying to get you to cry. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying... I want you to understand more about what happened, see it in the Scripture, learn some principles to study. But this is not really the kind of thing you get spoon-fed. This is the kind of thing that you need to figure out how to experience for yourself in a real and meaningful way. You know, and Jesus is able to make it real to you. You cannot identify with his death if you don't understand it. As charismatic Christians, we talk about the blessings all the time. We even call ourselves children of the resurrection. We seldom focus on the agony and gore of the cross. And that's, that's because there's more to Christianity than just the cross. But we make a mistake if we never come face to face, nose to nose, with the horrible reality of what happened. And realize that if they did that to him, what you're signing up for is the same treatment. Now, on his way to be crucified, he told his disciples that. Okay. In uh, John 19... We see much of the same story. He's standing before Pilate. They shout, crucify him, crucify him. And then uh, we'll pick up in verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. Y'all thought I made that up, didn't you? From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover week, about the sixth hour. Something that has confused us always, I told you earlier in Matthew, the sixth hour in Jewish time was 12 noon. Well, this is something that skeptics point at, that every book of Bible difficulties you'll ever see avoids. How can it be the sixth hour in Jewish time, which is 12 noon, him standing before Pilate, when Matthew and Mark have him on the cross already at 9 a.m.? And it's dark across all the land at 12. And this, this perplexed me for years. It's been one that Mandy's asked me about several times. I said, you know, I don't know. Keep studying. Well, we got it last week. I mean, I got it. And everywhere I turn, it's confirmed. So I'll, I'll cover the chronology of that first and then cover the chronology of the week with you. The, the thing is, in John, John is different from every other gospel in this one way. It was not addressed to a Jewish audience. It was not addressed to a Jewish and Gentile audience in one area. See, Luke was not addressed really to a Jewish audience, but it was addressed to Theophilus, a guy who presumably had been a a proselyte to Judaism, familiar with Judaism, and then converted to Christianity, but was Greek himself. His name means lover of God. Maybe even it was a pseudonym. I mean, I, I don't know. I just know he doesn't explain Jewish customs. Matthew does not explain Jewish customs. Mark does not explain Jewish customs. But John... My favorite gospel, guy I feel like's my buddy, when he wrote it, he explains the Jewish customs. 
Because he wrote it to believers everywhere. And he was well aware that many people would not be familiar with the Jewish customs. John was written later than the other Gospels too. Where he had had a chance to see the Gospel get to what their known world was. And that they wouldn't be familiar with all the Jewish customs. So John does not use Jewish time. The Gospel was written in Greek, which was not the language of the Jews. So that the Roman Empire that forced, uh, that, that most of the Roman Empire spoke Greek, the Romans built roads, the gospel could then get out. Well, it makes sense that if John's trying to get the gospel out all over the world, all over the Roman Empire, he uses the time that the Romans used, that everybody would have understood. So he doesn't have to explain. Now, the Jewish day started at this time and ended at this time because the Romans divided their time just like we did. Started at 12 midnight and went forward. Uh, our calendar today is based on a, a derivation of theirs. So it was 6 a.m. The sixth hour was 6 a.m. Now, I tell you all something constantly. I say scripture must be interpreted in light of scripture. I say it at nauseam, I'm sure. I hope nobody in here projectiles at me. But I say that constantly. So what I did then is I went back to look in John. Say, if it's true here that he used Roman time, And maybe nobody else is even concerned about this, but I was. If it's true here that he used Roman time, he must have used Roman time throughout the book. Otherwise, the argument holds no water for me. Well, in John 1, verse 39, this really serves no practical application other than to encourage you, whatever is a mystery to you today, if you'll stick with it, seek God about it, it won't be a mystery at some point. He, he reveals His truth to the lowly in spirit. John 1, 35. The next, this is the calling of Jesus' first disciples. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we have found the Messiah and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon Son of John, and y'all know the rest of that. When This is the first mention of time in the book of John. And what it is, is the calling of Andrew and Peter, Andrew and Simon. And what time was it, he said? The tenth hour. If that is Roman time, the tenth hour is ten hours from midnight or ten a.m. Okay? That would make sense since he said he spent the rest of the day with them. Correct? If this was Jewish time, the tenth hour would be four o'clock. It would be ten, ten hours into the day, six, from 6 a.m. when sunlight rose, to 4 a.m. It wouldn't make much sense that it said they spent the day with him if it started at four, but that in itself was not enough. I read in Matthew and Mark the calling of, of Simon and the calling of Andrew. And we saw in each one of those, no times mentioned, but the guys were in their boat repairing their nets when they meet Jesus. So... I looked in Luke, who often records more detail than the others do. And in Luke 5, and turn here, you'll see this. This is how Scripture helps you interpret Scripture. 
5, starting in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, same, same location, that's the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats uh, left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. You know why they were washing their nets? Yeah, why do you wash your fishing gear? When you're done using it, you do it to preserve it for the next time. Same reason people wash their bass boats after they're done. That was 5-1, Matt, and we're going to read through 5-5. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all... What's it say? All night. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When he met Simon and when he met Andrew, the other gospel says it was 10 a.m. by Roman time. Luke clears it up. He says they'd been working all night. They were then washing their nets. And Jesus asked him to go put back out. They didn't want to. That would make no sense if it was 4, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 p.m., would it? So, so far, my study in John seems to hold up. Then I got into something in John 4 that I was perplexed by. John 4 is the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Now, most of us that have, have heard this, this story before have been told it was the heat of the day. This woman was out gathering water at the well, this is John 4, because it was the heat of the day and nobody else was out there getting water. She was hiding because she had a sinful life. Jesus was tired because it was 12 noon. Uh, he was hungry because it was lunchtime and they were going to get food. Uh, because reading John 4, 1, it says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but the disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired, as he was from the journey. Sat down by the well, it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, Jewish times, 12 noon. We keep dealing with the sixth hour. In Roman time, which I maintain John was written in, it's 6 a.m. Well, how on earth is Jesus there at 6 a.m.? In many instances, Jesus traveled at night. That's recorded in at least two other Gospels. Do you remember the story? Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. The third watch of the night, he sees his disciples rowing and struggling against the uh, oars. The third watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He went out walking to them on the water, and immediately the boat was on the other side. They traveled at night to avoid the crowds. Another point here to mention. They left Judea and were on their way to Samaria. Depending on where they were in Judea and where they went in Samaria, that's somewhere around 40 miles. They didn't walk that from sunlight to noon. Can you walk 40 miles from sunlight to noon? No. It's because they traveled all night. He was tired because in order to stay on the schedule that the Holy Spirit had put him on, he had to give up sleep, which is, boy, a precious commodity. All you mothers with children can attest to that. You'll fight to protect your sleep. You know, the most carnal part of us comes out when you're tired. Jesus often went without sleep to get the gospel where it had to go. He walked all night. 
And the, why were the disciples looking for food? Well, Mandy found for me in the book of manners and customs for the Jews, and I found in several uh, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, guess what? We've been told all our lives that they were in town because it was lunchtime. They were buying food. Do you know that the Jews didn't eat lunch? They had two meals in the day. They worked during the day. They had two meals. One was the breakfast and one was the dinner. There's only one time that anything that relates to a lunch is ever mentioned, and that's a Sabbath luncheon in a Pharisee's house. And the idea was Sabbath was a day that you didn't work, and those who were very wealthy could have a lunch. This is an extra meal. It's extravagant in the middle of the day. But Jesus' disciples were going to look for bread and food in town because it was breakfast time. It's the time when all Jews ate. But Jews didn't eat at noon. So again, it held up. You know when the next mention of Roman time is? In the Bible? At the crucifixion. I am as convinced as I could possibly be in every way that there is no contradiction in the chronology uh, of, of time. And here's how it goes. On Tuesday evening, sometime after 6, they ate the Passover and they ate it early. It was on the day uh, of preparation for the Passover is really what it was. That night, they go into the garden, they pray. This is where Judas comes and gets him. He goes and stands before Pilate very, very, very early in the a.m., maybe three, four in the morning. He goes to Herod. He comes back to Pilate. When they pronounce that he's going to be crucified, it's between 6 a.m. and 9 when they put him on the cross. And it makes perfect sense. But again, this is a mystery if you don't study. So a skeptic looks at this because his heart is hard and they don't want to see the truth. And all they can see is error. Where God hides himself from those that claim to be wise. But those that are humble and say, it's not that you're just taking it on plain faith, ignorantly. You're taking this going... Every time I've ever run into this situation where it looked like I couldn't understand, God has eventually revealed it to me. You're not, you're not claiming ignorance. You're saying, based on my relationship with God, I know that even though this doesn't look like it lines up, He will eventually show me because He has every other time. Now, to those that are wise by the standards of this world, that seems foolish. Like you're just being brainwashed or something. But to those of us that have experienced this life in the Spirit, you know what it's like to receive a revelation. And most of the time, it relates to an overlooked detail. You know? Because the wisest guy on earth is not smart enough to figure out the gospel. It's not that kind of puzzle. It's the kind that only the pure in heart can see. Okay. So, from go back to John 19. Yeah, you know, that's one of those things that I just say that we, we cover here and it's kind of... Uh, I don't say mundane, but you guys may not be burning with question about that like I was. But the beautiful part of it is that something that we didn't know was unlocked to us, and it was unlocked from the heaven. That is the very principle that Jesus is building His kingdom on. It's what He told Peter. And if you've ever sought something, you know, the Bible says it's to the glory of God to conceal a matter and to the glory of kings to search it out. You feel like a king when something that had been concealed has been revealed to you. And it's a great feeling. If you never crack open this book and study on your own, you don't truly know what it's like to feel like a king. But when you study and you seek and something is beyond you and suddenly it comes to you, you feel like a king. Back to John 19. Uh, if you'll flip to... John 19:28, and I'm skipping this because we've already already read it. We here we see Jesus committing his mother to his disciple John's care, just above what we're reading, uh, and he calls her dear woman, not you know, 
most blessed virgin, Mother Mary, yeah, whatever else you, you want to call her, you know. Uh, incidentally, the two thieves that were on the cross, the one that got saved, Mary was standing 10 feet from him. He didn't ask for help from Mary. He went directly to Jesus. He didn't call a priest to come in and, you know, do some kind of transaction between them. He also didn't reach over and gnaw off one of Jesus' fingers or drink his blood. And yet he made it into the kingdom. Nobody gave him a Eucharist or blessed his sacraments. Or He was not even baptized. My United Pentecostal friends don't like that. You know what else? He never spoke in other tongues. Us charismatic devils. Oh, we shouldn't say that. Charismatic Christians, I should say. You know? Sometimes God just doesn't conform to all of man's rules, does he? Okay. Verse 28. Later, knowing all that was now completed, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink... Now, the other said he didn't drink it, but the Psalms say that it was offered to him. So whether he said he was thirsty so that they would offer it and then he spit it out or however that worked, this, this was part of the imagery. So that later when people would go back, they'd read the Psalms, they would see. It's also, yeah, tell me. John doesn't record for a while, a while, a Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, they're right. They're, yeah, he's replacing the event. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. So you can go on and see the Jews when the body's broken. A special Sabbath. King James says a high Sabbath. If anybody gets the CD, they're going to have to go look up these scriptures because we're out of time. But here's the thing, so that you'll know. A weekly Sabbath was not a special Sabbath. There are some commentaries out there that say that the day of Passover fell on the weekly Sabbath and that's why it was special. That's simply unscriptural. Special Sabbaths, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and several other places in the Bible, special Sabbaths are other holy days. What it amounts to is the 10th of Nisan was a Sunday. That was the day that everybody took the Passover lamb in their house. Because that's what the law commanded. It was also the day that Jesus made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The 14th of Nisan started Wednesday at 6 p.m. That was the day that the lamb's throats were cut. And the blood was applied to the doorpost. So here's what happens. Jesus is on trial uh, in the morning and during the day when everybody's taking their lamb out you know, getting ready to kill their lamb, they hear Jesus cry if they're in the area. It is finished at the same time people are cutting the throats of the lamb, right before twilight. This is why John, from the very beginning, identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God and makes it so clear. And he goes through great lengths to show you he was killed on the Passover day so everybody would get the imagery. This is that instrument whose blood causes us to pass from death to life. That's what it was supposed to be teaching. You can't read John 5 and 6 and not get that either. I mean, it it is as clear as can be. So Passover started at 6 p.m. Prior to 6 p.m., it was the day of preparation for Passover, meaning that they were doing their deal with their lambs and all. That's why it was called the day of preparation for the Sabbath, the special Sabbath. So Wednesday was a day of preparation. Thursday, our Thursday, was the Sabbath day. 
the uh, 6 p.m. of Wednesday started the day. It's when the lambs were killed. The Passover started. The next full day, through that evening and through the next daylight, which would be Thursday, our day, till 6 p.m. Thursday, was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Bible says it was a holy day. No work could be done. A holy day of convocation to the Lord. A Sabbath. So they couldn't go attend to Jesus. They couldn't do anything. Wednesday was a day of preparation. Thursday was a Sabbath. Friday was a regular work day. That's why the ladies um, prepare all their spices and everything on Friday. Joseph of Arimathea and the two Marys watched Friday, I'm sorry, watched Wednesday him put in the grave. Thursday, they went and did the Feast of Unleavened Bread, cleaned their houses, all those things. Friday, they prepared the embalming stuff. Saturday, they couldn't go because it was the Sabbath. It was forbidden. Sunday, one gospel says at light and the other says just uh, before light. One says very early in the morning. The other says just before light. They show up there and he's not there. Jesus said he would be in the grave three days and three nights. Wednesday at 6 p.m. he goes in the grave. Thursday, around 6 p.m., whenever it got dark. Thursday at 6 p.m. is one day. Friday, 6 p.m., two days. Saturday, 6 p.m., the third day. That's why he was not there the next morning. He had risen sometime in what we would call the evening. It's three days, three nights. It lines up perfectly with Scripture. And yet it's been hidden for ages. There are a few people that have gotten it, but because of a paradigm paralysis, it may be the three-day weekend, or it may be the Roman church's unwillingness to admit that they got something wrong. You know, maybe they'll have another Vatican, and at some point, you know, they'll correct it. I, I don't know. I have very little faith in that institution. But the point is, Jesus said he was in the grave three days, three nights, and he was. Just like you'll meet people that challenge the chronology of the cross, They'll challenge the chronology of the time in the grave. I did. I said, come on, man. What are you talking about? He was killed sometime after three on Friday. So, you know, at best, we got he's in the grave Friday evening. Uh, he's in there all day Saturday and maybe Saturday night. That's, that's two nights in one day. How do you get three days and three nights out of that? I didn't understand it. And there were all these fine-sounding theories about how he's in there part of the day Friday, all of the night Saturday. And all. That's not what he said. Yeah, that's that's insane, especially when you consider that he did not touch it Sunday. He was not there. Jesus rose Saturday evening, which was the start of the first day of the week, 6 p.m. So I hope that clears up uh, those two things. The other parts about the cross, guys, that I, I want you to know is the Bible speaks about us carrying our cross daily. Now, when you think about all that that cross entailed, about him being scourged, about him being mocked, about him being killed next to sinners, about him feeling forsaken, all of those things, why would you carry a cross with you daily? Because at any moment's notice, any time somebody wrongs you, any time your will starts to exert itself above God's, you're supposed to crucify your will and take up God's will. See, what the cross was, was the ultimate expression of a man's desire to do God's will over his own. That's why Jesus prayed in the garden. That's why he was so overwhelmed with sorrow. Because his body, even though it didn't sin, him as a man did, would not want to go suffer and die. But he wanted to please God. And he wanted the will of God done, so he did it. Nevertheless, your will be done. Doing the will of God is not always 
roses. But the end result is. And you need to make up your mind that you're going to carry the cross with you wherever you go. And whatever situation you need to be in, you'll crucify your will and take up God's will. That's, that's what we are about as Christians. We're not carrying our cross down the Via del Rosa today. You know, and by the way, it's Mormons who rent those cross, not Mormons, Muslims who rent those crosses. Isn't that interesting? And a bunch of Catholic pilgrims carrying them down there for 10 bucks a piece. Yeah, that's hardly worth comparing to what Jesus did. It, it, it really is. What better testimony would it be to say he died? I died to my old life with him. He rose again and I've risen with him to live a new life. There is a vast difference between Christianity, which one-fifth of the world's population says they are. Christianity is anybody who identifies themselves as a Christian. A Christian is somebody who follows the teaching of Jesus. Christianity is not made up of Christians. Does that make sense? Uh, We're going to close there. Sunday, invite anybody you can think. Sunday will be a fired up resurrection message. That's my favorite topic in all of the Bible. Uh, it will have to include some eschatology because that's when the next resurrection happens. There's another feast going on at this time. And it's the feast of first fruits. Jesus was the firstborn among those who have risen from the dead. The first fruit was that thing that you gathered out of the field said, here's the first fruit of my corn, my wheat, my barley. There's more just like this in the field. Jesus rose as proof. That there was more like him out there. More people that would be declared righteous and raised from the dead. That's what he was called. And we'll study that. So y'all stand up and we'll pray.